Okay, we left off. Paul has couched his comments in, uh, about marriage, about divorce, about all those topics in the fact that he says we're in a present time that is really difficult. And because of that present time, I want you to realize that whatever you do with your marriages or whatever, um, it will be very soon that it will be like you're not married is what he says. Those who are married, it will be like they're not married. And he was talking about the wrapping up of that age. So he says at verse 31, at the end, uh, verse 31 of chapter 7, he ends up with a passage we covered, for the fashion of this world passes away. He says, it, it, it will be like you aren't married anymore. Why? Because the fashion of this world is going to pass away. We're going to be with God in heaven, and everything that seems like is important right now won't be in very short order, is how he has put it. So let's read through to the end of uh, the chapter, beginning at verse 32. He says in the King James, but I would have you without carefulness. That's a very uh, difficult line. He that is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married cares for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference also between a wife and a virgin. An unmarried woman cares for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married cares for the things of this world, how she may please her husband. Remember the context, you guys. And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, it says in the King James, and that you may attend upon the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age and needs so require, let him do what he will, he sinneth not. Let them marry, verse 37. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, doeth well. So then he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. Verse 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. He adds, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she so abide after my judgment. And I think that I have the Spirit of God. And that ends chapter 7, which is really heavy because it says, Paul says so many things about marriage and the marital relationship and putting away a husband or a wife. And remember, all couched in that time, in that context, especially the things we just read. So let's go back to verse 32 to wrap this chapter up, which I really look forward to. Because when we get in chapters 8 on and 9, and when we get to 13, 12 and 13, some awesome stuff. Then we get to 1 Corinthians 15, one of the most remarkable chapters in the whole uh, book of Corinthians. It's radical stuff. He's really labored, though, on the topic about the different types of relationships we have within marriage at that time, because it's been important to the Corinth church to establish that so they don't become unraveled with these different problems that we have in life. So at verse 32, he says in a very clumsy King James translation, but I would that you are without carefulness. So when we read that, we, he's saying, don't be careful, right? Um, it's an unfortunate word. In the Greek, the word better means anxiety. So carefulness and anxiety, the King James to them, that, was, that would be what they said. But I would have you without anxiety, is what he says. Um, he that is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. My advice, even though I have said to you, you're free to do as you wish, and he has made that clear, is that in these present distresses which surround us with the Romans, with the Judaizers coming in, with the Gnostics coming in, with the culture of Greek uh, paganism coming into the church, we have to hang together. The gates of hell can't prevail against this apostolic church that we've established. I, I have told you, you are free. Um, but uh, 
You can pursue a course that you want. I'm just giving you the one I think will give you the least amount of anxiety. He adds uh, his reason for saying this, because he that is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. We talked about him saying that earlier in the chapter, and bottom line it was, if you can live your life without fornicating, then, and you want to uh, live your life as an unmarried person, I grant you that blessing as an apostle, even though the Lord said it's not good for a man to be alone, uh, and it seems like they're contradicting each other. Paul is saying, I'm telling you, stay unmarried because it's too tough right now, and pretty soon it's going to be like you're not married anyway. That whole thing's going to dissolve. So, but he says, he that is married cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. If you're not attached, you have the liberty to devote your time to heavenly matters. And that's what we're all about in this period of time. Paul's own life, at least at this point, seems to reflect this, that it is said that he was married at one time and his wife, a Jew in all probability, certainly excuse me, left him uh, because of his conversion to the faith. That's the, that's the historic idea. It doesn't say that in Scripture, but that's what is thought. And so he has given himself entirely to the work of the Lord. So he's speaking somewhat from experience at verse 33. But he that is married cares for the things that are of this cosmos, this world, how he may please his wife. Because God is clear about the preferable way to pass through mortality for men, very early on he said, it's not good for men to be alone. I'm going to create Eve. That's just not good. Um, We know that this advice, again reiterating, is for them at that time. The problem is uh, people today will read this passage and they'll start to say, the Bible is for us today. This is what Paul says. So it's good you don't marry. The Shakers were of that crowd. The Shakers uh, didn't marry and they became extinct really quickly because no one had children. And, and, and so obviously that's not the meaning. And it also tells us that we have to look at the Bible and use it contextually. We have to understand that there were things for that time. All right. Uh, and there are those today who prefer to be unmarried. And if this supports them spiritually, fine. That's what it's for. It's a spiritual map for you to read if the Spirit justifies you not marrying. You don't have to be married to be a Christian. And you don't have to be unmarried to be a Christian is the point. So his point is, though, if you have to have relations with the opposite sex, he says earlier, it's better to marry than to burn, with burn being a historical way of both Jews Christians now, and even the pagan world describing what it is like to be in your flesh and to just burn through carnal desires. It's better to marry than to burn, is what he says. Notice, though, that Paul admits the role of the husband here. He says, even though this is what happens, unfortunately, if you want to devote your life to God, if you marry, he says, you do things to please your wife. The first part, he's talking about a man's relationship to the wife. In a minute, he's going to talk about the woman's relationship to the husband. The word to please his wife is oresko in the Greek. And it doesn't mean, um, it means to be agreeable toward her. It means that she finds you agreeable, is what it says, right? So you are to um, make yourself so you're agreeable to your wife husbands. No burping at the table. If the wife finds burping at the table disagreeable, you will die to yourself as Christ died for the church and gave his life for it. And you will say, wife, I won't burp anymore at the table. You don't appreciate it. It's not agreeable to you. That is the advice, right? So we have a biblical tenet within marriage that a man uh, here, Paul says, is to be agreeable to his wife. And the other only real biblical tenet of marriage in the Christian world is that a man is to love his wife. As Christ loved the church and gave his life, sacrificed his life, his bachelor parties, his burping, his scratching his belly and watching TV, he gives himself up, he dies to that self for the one he loves. The, the advice for the wife in scripture is even less. And you know we've talked about it and that is respect your husband. 
Respect your husband. That's it. Husband, love your wife. Wife, respect your husband. Now, if you think about that, it's really insightful. Why? If we go to the Adam and Eve model, what happened? God made Adam out of the clay, breathed into him, became a living soul. And we have Adam here. And God took from Adam Eve and she became his wife. He took from Adam. So Adam needs to love the thing that came from Adam. That is what a wife wants. She wants to be solely loved, adored by her husband, where she came from. She wants that thing she came from, not literally, but spiritually speaking, to love her. And so that's why that's, that's the only thing that is said of a man. Love your wife. We notice that it doesn't tell the wife to love the husband. It tells the wife to respect the husband. Why? Well, when something is taken from something, that something that's taken from wants respect. And if you look at men, we want respect. We want to be respected. We want our, idea, our ideas to seem like they're the most genu- genius ideas on the face of the world. You don't have to agree with it. You just have to show the respect. You sit down in a good marriage counseling, in all probability, the man is somehow not loving his wife or making her feel loved, and she is somehow or another not respecting his ideas to build an ark for the coming flood in the backyard. It's, 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 this is how it is in the marriage. And, and that's why the scripture is so beautiful, because it just says it so simply. He doesn't give more, God doesn't give us more than that in marriage. Just those simple things. Perfect template in my, expo- in my understanding. So he plainly points out within that state, especially in that age, that trials will come with marriage. You aren't able to f- focus your devotion on having become a Christian in a very tumultuous state. You have to focus both on the tumult of your life now being a Christian in a largely, predominantly non-Christian world, plus you've got to care for each other. And so he says, I think you ought to reconsider that. Uh, it's often not discussed, but relations can become idolatrous too um, in this world uh, where family can become more important than God. Uh, A spouse can become worshipped more than God. It's never been the case in God's true children to love a spouse more than they love him or even children. But it's not selfishly. It's because God knows if we place our faith and love on God first, then he knows we are going to have a better, more refined, qualitative type of love for others thereafter. If we place on others first and God second or, or later, there's can, difficulties can arise. So it's not like he's an egomaniac. Got to love me first. I want that love. It's really for our benefit. Uh, a woman who really loves God is going to be a woman who truly will respect her husband. Uh, and that relationship is what we're looking at. So at this point, Paul says something relative to the married and unmarried woman, women at verse 34. And this is, enters us into a really interesting situation. He says, there is a difference also between a wife and a virgin. And we pointed out last week, virgin does not mean what virgin means directly in our language today in Scripture. Virgin means a young, unmarried woman. Virgin means a young, unmarried woman, right? And so, because she's unmarried in the biblical sense, because that's the definition of it, it's supposed she is also a virgin. That's how we get the idea that she hasn't had sexual relationships with a man because she is unmarried. That's how much marriage meant in that day. You call a woman unmarried, it automatically was assumed she hasn't had relationships with a man. But it doesn't necessarily mean, in our language, what virgin means. So he says there's a difference between a wife and an unmarried maiden. The unmarried woman, the virgin in the King James, cares for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married cares for the things of the world, how she may please, Oresco, her husband, be acceptable to him. Now, we know there is a difference here that Paul points out between a wife, a married woman, and an unmarried young woman, or what the King James calls the virgin. The, the Greek word here for difference is memoristi, if I pronounced it right, and it just means there's a difference. We have a difference, men and women, when we look at either a wife 
and compare her to someone who's not married. A difference. An unmarried woman, first of all, cares for the things of the Lord who's a Christian. That's the context of this. He's talking to the church at Corinth. That she may be both holy in body and in spirit. We're going to talk about what that means in a second. But then he adds, but she that is married cares for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So essentially, there's no difference between a married man and a married woman in what their expectations are. And there is uh, not much difference between unmarried males and females either. They care for the Lord or they care for each other. One difference Paul does make between the unmarried woman and the married is he says the unmarried cares for the things of the Lord instead of her husband, presumably, but then adds that she may be holy in body and spirit. At face value, that um, phrase can be troubling because it sounds like he's saying that a married woman is not holy. And then we make that then another jump because she is not a virgin. And then we make another jump and therefore not being a virgin in marriage is not right. And then we make the other jump that says, if you stay a virgin your whole life, you're more holy. And all of those interjections and things we tie to that verse are really improper because it contextually, and most scholars, which I consulted, agree, what Paul was saying is when a woman marries a husband, there can be, especially in interfaith marriages, the husband wanting the wife to uh, dress up, be of the world, wear costly apparel, and be seen as something that he wants her to be seen like as he, as he has her as his arm piece out in society. And Paul is saying that they don't seem holy in body sometimes when they're married and they're meeting the expectations of a spouse. And so that seems to be the meaning. It could not possibly mean that a woman is less holy or unholy because she's married. Otherwise, the whole institution that God provided is, is ridiculous, and, and God set up an a situation for people to become unholy. And it, it also eliminates the, the fact that God would, uh, would be a, not be a respecter of persons. It would be saying that God respects people in different ways, and if a woman is married and having relationships lawfully with her husband, God sees her as a little bit more tainted than a woman who decides to live as a, a nun throughout her whole life. There's no difference in Christ. There's no difference in that. Because the unmarried woman who remains chaste uh, has other sins. She's tainted by sin some way or another. And God isn't looking at us according to our sins. He's looking at us according to being believers or not. So you have to dispel the, the natural idea to jump into those things that many people have taught and said. And, and they've brought that on. And we still have that as women being holy vestiges of virtue and more pleasing to God and more sanctifying to God because they have never uh, married or been with a man. And that doesn't play out because they still are in a sinful state with other parts of their life. And plus, marriage is holy. Marriage is sanctified by God. So there's nothing wrong with it. Paul does not mean they're unholy in their body because they're married. He means there's an association with a husband and sometimes those associations can make her appear in her body less holy than a woman who is unmarried and dedicated her whole self to the Lord. I think that's the thinking behind the case. Verse 35, and he says, This I speak for your own profit. I'm doing it for your own good. We are in troubling times. Uh, I'm encouraging you. I want to support you. So I'm giving you this advice. And we're going to see as we finish this chapter up that Paul he says at the very last verse, I think I have the Spirit. In other parts in this chapter, Paul has said, I'm not, Lord is not saying this. This is my opinion. And so here, he's kind of doing the same thing. I'm giving you my best advice. I speak for your own profit. He adds, not to cast a snare upon your life. I don't want to infringe upon the liberty that you have in your life. But for what which is comely, which is beautiful, attractive in your life, that you may attend upon the Lord without distraction. This is why I'm saying it. 
Uh, Paul, like Jesus, did not want to cast a snare upon people. He wanted to bring liberty, and he wanted to bring freedom into the lives of people. That's what Isaiah said he was coming for. And so in the grand scheme of things, Paul is saying, don't let all this talk burden you. If, you fa- if you're engaged, and you've become a Christian, and you're betrothed, which was a legal document, and, you're, and your spouse is a non-believer, don't let me cast a snare upon you with all of this. Unite. You can do that. He is, he's not trying to cast a snare. He's trying to make it easy, though. And people who are going to engage in that, there's going to be a price in that day and age. There's a price in every day and age when you decide to marry. There's a rubbing off of our ways against the other person, and, and you start to have difficulties and disagreements. Very easy to be alone. We talked about this last week. So I don't want to bind you and, uh, and, and make it hard. I just want you to be more decorated in your faith if that's what you choose. Paul's reason, so that in that age, they can freely engage in the duties of God, which will make their lives so much more simpler, because very shortly, again, those who are married, it will be as if they're not. That's verse 31, I think it says in full. Those who are married, soon it's going to be as if they're not. Now, there are religious orders that have taken this, and um, they have remained unmarried. Some of their priests and things have said, we don't marry. The Shakers were one. Catholics are another. And it's had disastrous results, in my opinion. And, and God's plan was never for that. This was Paul just for them. All right, verse 6 is interesting. I just want to spend a few minutes on this. And I want to explain to you why it is so interesting. There are a group of people, they're called King James Onlyists. And King James Onlyists say that the King James Bible is God's Bible, and all other versions of the Bible are really bastardizations, they can't be trusted, they are wrong. And that's a King James only. We've had a few show up uh, here in our study and, and didn't stay long. Uh, they, uh, they don't like if there's other views outside the King James. And we have a big difference here in what the King James says and what the other versions say. So I just want to reiterate to you and help you understand how these Bibles, what they are. Really quickly. Well, it's not that quick, but uh, I don't think I can do anything quick. Um, the King James Bible came from something called the received or the authorized text. And it means that those King James translations of the Bibles that we have, the American Standard, the King James, and others, those manuscripts were considered as a whole the, the authorized or uh, the authorized or received text. Just understand that. I'm going to make two piles here. The manuscripts that make the King James Bible here on my right and the manuscripts that make up the other Bibles on my left. So the King James Bibles, the, av- the availability of the Bible itself, all Bibles, began with two things. A need and... Um, invention, a need and invention. The availability came about because of need and invention. So first, it was seen that individual Bibles were need, needed for people who lived in other places beside, besides uh, Roman Catholic areas, which the Bibles were all in Latin. So that was a need. We need to get people who speak I'm just going to use German or Swahili or whatever, whatever the French. We need to get Bibles that they can read because they don't all speak Latin. So there's the first thing. And it also happened when people stopped becoming um, educated in Hebrew and Greek and even Latin and Aramaic. As people started to just adopt the language of where they grew up and said, I'm not going to study for 10 years to learn Hebrew, then the manuscripts that we had available back in the day, they became less and less purposeful because people couldn't read them. So there was another need that not only language differences, but no one could read the original languages, or not no one, very few people, only scholars. So it wasn't until the 14th century that the Bible was translated into English because of need. Prior to that, that's the 14th century, prior to that, it was all in Latin. All of the manuscripts and any Bibles that were created 
sewn together into a written manu uh, codice of book were written in Latin, all right, um, for the people. And this all started with a guy named Jerome. He produced a Bible called the Vulgate, and that's way back in 405 AD. 405 AD, Jerome took all the manuscripts available to him. He created a Bible called the Vulgate, and the manuscripts that he used for that are all part of this side, what are called the authorized or revised parts of the Bible. They all sat there, essentially. Uh, sporadic attempts to translate the Bible into Old English occurred uh, before 1100 AD, but it gave limited access uh, and there was no printing press and they quickly deteriorated. And so it was for those who didn't know Latin well, but they weren't ubiquitously available. A guy named the Veneral Bede, a historian and scholar in the Middle Ages, early Middle Ages, he was worried about the less educated clergy. So it wasn't just the masses. The clergy couldn't understand some of the ancient languages either. So that it's really getting difficult now because the clergy's manuscripts in Latin, and we had some people out in the hill country and stuff who couldn't read Latin. So the Venerable Beast said, listen, we need to translate. And he took the Gospel of John, and he started to translate that into uh, other languages. But he died in 735 AD, so, and that fell apart. Uh, then we have some versions of manuscripts where people have written the language in between the written lines. They're called the glossed versions. So it would be like if we found a manuscript today of the Bible written in Greek, and you could read Greek, and you wrote English in between the lines, those would be glossed versions or documents uh, that we would use, manuscripts. All for the substantiation of the authorized King James Bible. We're all still on this side. And there were some others, I'm not going to go into them, that are in the British Museum. In the Middle English period, circa 1100 to 1500 A.D., a guy named John Wycliffe, John Purvey, and Nicholas of Hereford, they, they collaborated to produce the first complete English Bible. Where did they get their manuscripts? They were all from the manuscripts here. Where, what Bible did they take their understanding to get their English from? The Latin Vulgate. So any of those Bibles were going to be extensions of the King James, which would ultimately come. But these are, these are right before the King James was produced. They're all of the same family. There were two editions of the Wycliffe Bible, and they were both translations of the Latin text provided to, by Jerome back in 405. So we're talking about some pretty standard texts that had been used and read for quite a while. The first edition was uh, a literal translation from Latin into English. That was, uh, the second edition was 1396, so I'm bringing you up to speed. And that was circulated, and as a result of that work, Wycliffe and his followers, just as a side note, they're called the Lollards. The Lollards were persecuted as heretics by the Roman Catholic Church, and they came out 12 years later in 1408 with the Constitutions of Oxford, and they said, listen, nobody can come up with a translation of the Bible unless we tell them they can do it. If you do it, we're going to put you to death. And they did. They put people to death for taking manuscripts who had the, the knowledge, presumably, and translated that Bible. Why? They wanted a corner on the accessibility to the Bible's information and the ability to preach it like they wanted to teach and preach it. By the 16th century, a number of events affected Bible translation. The Renaissance started up in people a desire to learn the ancient languages again. And so people started learning Hebrew and Koine Greek and the different Aramaic languages that were necessary to translate the manuscripts that were available. And more uh, Greek scholars were moving because of the fall of Constantinople and a bunch of historical things. Then we have the invention of the printing press. Here comes the invention. So we have, I believe, God allowing everything to come into play. We have a new, I, new interest in ancient language. We have the invention of the printing press, and we have a lot of scholars being pushed out of Constantinople, was taken over by the Turks, to come in and use their knowledge of the ancient language to bring all this together. Well, in comes this guy named Erasmus, and Erasmus is one of my heroes 
Uh, he it was a Roman Catholic. He died a Roman Catholic. He was in opposition often to Martin Luther, who came along thereafter. But Erasmus, a faithful scholar, he took the Latin Vulgate Bible, and he took all the manuscripts that went along with it, and he went to the tedious... Uh, task of translating, giving us a Greek translation of that Bible. And that Greek translation caused Erasmus to say, the Bible I created here from the manuscripts doesn't seem to even be the same Bible that the Latin Vulgate was. That was from his mouth, and he was a Catholic. He says, this, these are very different texts. We have been very, very wrong. So what Erasmus provided for us was a translation of all those available manuscripts here, and he brought about what is believed to be some real honesty and integrity, and he put a Bible together in Greek, and then we had Greek scholars who were going to come in and translate. Well, the first one was William Tyndale. You've heard of Tyndale publishers today. He came in, a Greek scholar, and Tyndale based his English New Testament on Erasmus's Greek text of the Latin Vulgate manuscripts and the Latin, uh, Latin Vulgate Bible and the manuscripts that supported it. And uh, that was in 1516 and in 1526, and he revised it in 1534. And then Miles Coverdale came in and he did the 16th century. Um, and then in 1611, we have the King James Bible. He says, King James says, I want a Bible. I want to give it my blessing. He brings in the whole story. You've probably heard it. And we call that Bible, finally, the authorized. Authorized by who? King James. He's authorized scholars to come in, take Erasmus, take Tyndale, take Coverdale, take everybody's stuff, and give us a Bible that we can read and trust. And so that's what we have, King James. That's what I read. That's what I teach from. The interesting thing is that while I read and teach from that, many people who are reading along with us at home and here, they have different Bibles. And they don't usually say anything, but often there'll be different words, actually different meanings in their Bibles. Where did that come from? In the 1800s, some discoveries of a codex called Sinaiticus, um, which are earlier manuscripts than what was in the authorized. Codex Sinaiticus was found in a room full of scrolls, and some of the, some of the scrolls were burned, and they were all ancient. And, but we, this Codex Sinaiticus gave us an older manuscript than what they had worked on in the King James. And so from the Codex, Codex Sinaiticus, we had a long story, I'm not going to tell you, of people coming in, and the result, we have differences. Here we have, I'll just say a hundred, I could be wrong, a hundred times more manuscript evidences for the support of the King James Bible. It's probably more like 50 or something, but it's a lot. Piles of it. Here we have older manuscripts, not nearly as numerous. Because the Codex uh, Sinaiticus was deemed really, really old, and it's pretty reliable that it was. So the argument begins now. Are you a King James onlyist? Are you reading a Codex Sinaiticus translation of the Bible that came from something that's older but not nearly as universal in the manuscript evidence? And then we have division all over the, the discrepancies that come between these two versions. And um, just to let you know, if you have an NIV, which I jokingly call the nearly inspired version, or if you have an ESV, these are all come from Codex Sinaiticus, from two guys named Westcott and Hort, who translated that out into English and gave us our modern versions. So if you have a modern version that's not from this line, you have something from that line, and you are saying, eh, it doesn't really matter. Now, the King James only is say there are 12,000 changes between our version and your version. And again, I made that number up, but they say there's a lot, hundreds and hundreds of changes. And there's websites that will show you those changes. Most of them are he and it or whatever. They're, 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 they're minuscule. They don't matter that much. But we have differences, and some of them can be significant. 
How? Reread re verse 36 with me from the King James. It says, But if any man thinks he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and needs so require, let him do what he will, he sinneth not, let them marry. The Codex Sinaiticus, the revised text, this is called the received text. Here there's the revised text says, If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. The interpretation of these two passages is very significant if you want to make a big deal out of the topic. I don't. I, I don't care. In fact, you can read them either way and they work. But bottom line, there's a significant difference in the translation of verse 36. Because in the King James, the man referred to here is a father of a virgin. That is what it's referring to of a daughter who has not married. In the revised, the anyone is a man who's engaged to a woman. There's the difference between the two. So in the King James, Paul advises, but if any man, a dad, thinks that he behaves himself uncomely toward his unmarried daughter, virgin, meaning is he treating her poorly? Why would he treat her poorly? We'll tell you in a second. And if she passes the flower of her age, she's getting older and it's an embarrassment to the family. That's what this is meaning contextually. And so need require, meaning there's a reason for this father, there's a, for him to let her marry. Maybe she got engaged. Maybe something's happened where she, he needs to let her marry. That's why he says, and so require, let him, the father, do what he will. He sends not. Let them marry. That's the definition of how you would explain 36 from a father's standpoint. And it's well known in the East that in, it was dishonorable to a family for the, for the daughters not to marry. And, and the older they got, the more dishonorable it was upon the head of household. And so uh, Paul seems to be speaking of the reputation of the father, and he's telling them, if these things exist, it's okay. Let them marry in the situation of everything falling apart in this circumstance at Corinth. If it'll alleviate her shame, bring happiness, all that stuff. But they say Paul is speaking to the man who's engaged to a virgin here in the revised. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. Here, the implication is, if a man is engaged, betrothed to a woman, uh, a, young married, a young unmarried maiden, and he discovers he's not behaving properly toward her, maybe his passions are, are getting aggressive, maybe he's becoming more sexually desirous of her, and, and he, he's, his advances are improperly toward her, they're not pretty, they're not comely, um, if his passions are strong, let him do as he wishes, if it is, needs to be so, it's not a sin. Now, the advice is, either, is fine either way, isn't it? It's fine either way. You have a father who is shamed that his daughter hasn't been married yet, and all these other factors come in, let her marry, he says. You have a man who's engaged to a woman, and the passions are going, and it needs to be that they should be married, let him marry. It's not a sin. Either way you read it, it's not a, that's not the point. Um, the point is these two translations give us two different stories. Absolutely, they are different understandings. Now, this shouldn't take away from our reliance on the Bible as providing us with the Word of God. I mean, these are, these are a few examples, and I could probably fill a half of a page with examples that might have some actual meaning. But then when we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and we look at other uh, uh, artifacts that give us support for what is written, we have such clarity and certainty that these texts are ancient and they are reliable. But we do have this thing. What are you? Where do you stand? King James, revise. You know where I stand? I stand with God. I stand with the Spirit. I can read either one. I can enjoy either one. And I am uplifted by either one. And so it doesn't matter to me. I think it's making mountains out of molehills, but it lends to the idea we should not let the contents of a book destroy us. We should let the contents of the book be a joy to us 
and not divide over the jots and tittles, which is what the Jews did when Jesus walked the earth, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. So I think God allows us to have all this. And I think he says, those people who say they love me, let me throw the Bible in the midst of them and see what they do with that one. Let's see if they can agree. Let's see if we bring up some manuscripts that don't support other ones. Let's see if they can really love each other or if they're going to become legalists and divide on the word and argue and become denominational. All right. So we have some, uh, we have some ways to look at, and I'll be quick. I'm almost done. You can agree with the King James only and you can essentially you attack everybody else if, you're, if, if that's your idea. You don't have to, but that could be your way. You can disagree to the point that we only read the ESV. There are churches that will do that. You must read from this book, or you must read from that book. Um, and by the way, from the Westcott Hort translation of the Sinaiticus, uh, we have divisions there too. So uh, we can consult both and uh, allow the Spirit to lead. And remember that love is the commandment on our life with other people. It is not, we will not have a um, theology test at our death. We won't have to recite scripture at our death. I don't think God is going to say, how did you interpret John 4, 16? I don't believe that for a second. I think it's just going to be about coming to a kingdom of love. How much of you that left earth can fit into this kingdom that's all love? How much of you is going to be able to assimilate into a, in a, an environment of pure love, which is what God is? And I, don't, I think all these things are just foolishness. Um, or we realize that God has had a reason because we do agree that God is over things. And we do agree that if God wanted, I suppose, he could have eradicated the Sinaiticus and he could have given us the King James only. And that's the only thing we've ever had, but he didn't. And he doesn't. So I would suggest we go that way. Verse 37, nevertheless, Paul says after verse 36, he that stands steadfast in his heart, this is talking either to a boyfriend who's engaged to the virgin or to the father. You can read it either way. It, that's the beautiful thing about this. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, there's no engagement, there's no binding legal contract, but has power over his own will, that can be the will of the father to be nice to his daughter, it can be the will of the engaged man to be respectful to her, and has so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin. The betrothed says, You're gonna we're not going to marry, we're going to stay, because the time's coming when it will be like we're not married anyway. Or the father says, I will keep you in my home, daughter. I love you. You're not married, but that's not going to shame me. Doeth well. And we get the answer to both those different passages of 36 in 37. Uh, I love that. Nevertheless, if the father stands steadfast in his heart, or the, or the husband-to-be stands steadfast in his heart, there's no contracts. He has the power over his own will to behave kindly and respectfully to the bride in question. He has decreed in his heart to keep the virgin, uh, daughter or bride, Paul says. He does well. He does not sin. Um, but it's the next verse that makes me personally lean to the King James Version being correct in this because this is what he says. And I realize it can be taken either way. So then he that giveth her in marriage doeth well. But he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. That's Paul's advice. Well, the one who gives in marriage is typically the father in that scenario. And therefore I would think verse 36 should be understand through the King James translation. And, and, and look at it that way if you want to really understand what it is saying. Um, I was uh, interviewed by my friend and brother, John DeLynn, the other day. And uh, he said, at your church campus, do you let anybody get up and teach? And I said, we have. And I said, I don't think people would want to. And I said, because if you're really going to get into it and try to understand it, you've got to spend some time to get into this word. And I think people realize they have lives that they're called to do. They do their thing. I do my thing. So they're just like, let him do it. Because you have to dig to find out what this stuff means if you want to get to the truth of it. And I don't want, look at if I, my wife just had open hip surgery, I don't want to learn everything about it. I want that doctor to be the one to tell me what to do and to trust that his experience and education are going to help me do it. 
We do that with each other. So I just think that's interesting in this sight of what we discovered because it's not easy. You can't just read it in the English and say, well, I think this, you know, neener, 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 you're wrong. We got to examine it. Okay, verse 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. Uh oh, big caveat line here. Only in the Lord. Uh, meaning only to another believer. And this opens up to a modern day application that can be really, really unfortunate. Here, there's another passage in 2 Corinthians 6.14. It says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This is a passage. My daughter went to a Christian school. All the girls and boys at the Christian school use this on each other. The LDS use it. Uh, marry someone equally yoked. Mormon, marry a Mormon. Catholic, a Catholic. Christian, a Christian. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believeth with an infidel? This is strong language. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be in their God, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Well, <coughs> you've got some girls and guys sitting around uh, after school and college, and they're talking about marriage, and someone pulls out these scriptures, and it, what it says is, the whole world is, is off to you in terms of a future spouse. Have to fish within your pond. And God says it right here. I can prove it. And you stick by it. Here, Paul says that if a person, especially he speaks of women here, whose husbands die, that she is free to marry another. You're freed from the law of that husband, he says. But he adds only in the Lord means only you're free to pick another who's a Christian. And it's thought that it was improper for a Christian widower, widow or widower at that time, at that time, to have a husband die, or wife die, presumably, and for them to go take someone who's not a believer and bring them into the flock. That's the idea behind this. And the reasons at the time are obvious. Christians, they're being martyred. You're a Christian. They're being put to death. We're going to read of uh, tens of thousands being put to death under Nero in the very new, near chronological future for this group. And Paul is saying, you go and you're a Christian and you marry someone who's not and you're going to be taken to be put to death. What do you suppose that will do to the marriage in and of itself? Don't even go down that road. It's important to keep believers focused on the faith and an unbelieving spouse is not going to add to the trials we're under. A believing spouse would help in that march toward our ultimate destiny, which is either to be taken up by Christ or to be killed, one or the other. Paul ends with an important insight. But she is happier if she so abide, meaning in my advice, she'll be happier after my judgment. And then he adds, and I think also I have the Spirit of God. So many scholars think that Paul's way of saying this is I am definitely inspired. I am definitely inspired. Not I think I have the Spirit of the Lord when I say this. The scholars say he's really from the Greek saying he definitely is inspired. The term translated, I think, is used several places in the New Testament, other places, and it typically does not mean certainty in those other places. So I think is a really good translation. And it implies there is some doubt. I am not fully convicted. So Paul says, I think I have the spirit when I say this, all right? So when he adds that line in my book, especially in line of when he talks about there being freedom in Christ, liberty in all things, happy is the man or woman who is, uh, who is at peace with the decisions they make, happy is that person. I am able to take all that dogmatic stuff he said to them at that age and say, I think you ought to back off. I'm not sure it's true. I have met many couples in the course of ministry who married inner faith. One was a believer, one was not. 
or Mormon to Christian or Catholic to what? And, and I have seen great disasters. It's just pragmatic that you would marry somebody of the same faith if you want to reduce that tension in a marriage. It's obvious. And if you want to make that decision, I think it's good. But it's not a law that you can't because at the same time, I've met several couples who the girl was like, I knew he was the one and he wasn't a believer. And I went to the Lord and I just said, Lord, I'm marrying him. And the Lord was like, you got to go, you know, do what you're going to do. And she did. And he converted. As Paul talked about earlier in our study of chapter 7, where the wife has a great ability to bring along the husband or the husband has a great ability to bring along the unbelieving spouse if their walk is good. My daughters, I have never believed, this is uh, me being uh, open here, I have never believed that any of my daughters would marry a Christian. I'd never thought that they would marry a Mormon. I'd never thought that they would marry Christians. I, I only voiced this to my first daughter when she married a non-Christian, uh, a Nicholas, Nicholas, a Swede. And Matt, he's a Christian, that's Cassidy's husband, but he was raised on, on religion and he's really smart and he sees through it and he sees the abuses that he kind of encountered as uh, a kid. And so he's like hands off of all that. So he's not like a sold out Christian. Would they have it easier in the realm of the faith with children and marriage, marrying someone like-minded faith? I think so. But it does not mean that it's uh, not in this day of grace permitted to marry someone who is not. And people would say, you're going against the Bible. I'm not. I'm saying there's wisdom in things, but the spirit is above that and can move people outside the box that we try to put them in when it comes to relationships. So in an age where the church is not under the same scrutiny and the same stuff, I think there's liberty there. I think you give the advice, oh, are they a Christian boy? No, they're not. Okay, well, you love him. Is he respectful to you? Is he gonna, I mean, is he a hard worker? Is he going to be faithful to you? Things like that. I wouldn't change my sons-in-laws for anything in the world. Jesus said, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage. This is an earthly construct. I love those guys, and they've come closer to uh, God and Christ as a result of their marriage to the daughters than anybody. I don't know what will happen with the last one. But uh, uh, I was raised in a home where my mom was faithful in the Mormon church, but as soon as my brother, the youngest, was raised, my dad, he, he's an atheist. He just came out. I don't even believe in any of it, and I never have. Um, that did create some difficulty in my parents raising kids. My mom was much more strict, my dad more liberal. Well, that happens typically anyway. So I'm just bringing it all out. That wraps up chapter one, uh, I mean chapter seven of 1 Corinthians. We're going to wrap this up just with a quick reading only of the first 13 verses of chapter eight to get it in your head. We'll cover those verse by verse next week. And it gets real interesting because he starts it off with now, okay, I've covered all this for you guys as touching things offered to idols. Okay, this shows you the situation they were in. They're offering meat and stuff up to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Charity, that is love, agape love, edifies. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man loves God, the same is known of him. Great passages, verse four. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. That's the first thing to remember in our conversation. For there, and this, listen to what he says next. For there, for though there be, God, I'm sorry, butchering this. For though there be that are called gods, lowercase g, whether in heaven or earth, as there be God's many and Lord's many. But to us there is but one God, uppercase, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we in him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth not us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. We're talking great liberality here, guys. But take heed lest any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in an idol's temple, 
Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? We'll explain all of this. And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you sin so against brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Because it's not loving. Wherefore, if meat makes my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend. King James is kind of twisted up there. We'll get to the meaning of all that. I think it's a fantastic way to get into uh, how to live your life as a Christian and, and the way to kind of see it uh, from a scriptural perspective relative to other people who are both liberal and conservative. How do you do it? We'll see next week. All right, questions, comments, prayer list from the kin. Who's our Vanna White today? Jonathan, looking spiffy. All right. Come on, you guys, don't be shy. Our, our audience at home, love your insights. No one? Wave your hand. No one? Going once. There it is. It's like testimony meeting. <laughs> Got to sit in five minutes of silence first. Sean, you never go over anything quickly. I know. <laughs> Except my um, proposal to my wife. That was quick. Quick question on uh, what you're going over with with translations. Is there, and I'll email you this later on about it, uh, but is there a good uh, book that can walk you through kind of the history and development? Like there's, what you there's a lot of them. Norman Geisler is really good uh, on it, and he brings stuff out. I would be careful of Josh McDowell's Evidence Demands a Verdict. It covers a lot with uh, scriptural supports that are kind of... Um, kind of like enticing to use on people, but there's a deeper source. I would look at maybe some of the Biola scholars, um, something's wrong with our sound, and, uh, and, and consult them. But let me look into it, Jason, and when you email me, I'll send you the list I've got. Okay. Good question, though. It's a fascinating study. Yeah. Anybody else? Is that it? All right, you guys, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... Uh, sending your word, becoming flesh, dwelling among us, giving his life, rising to new life, and, and ascending, and uh, giving us, fulfilling everything for us if we allow him. And we're just grateful for that mediation and that love so much for the world, uh, that while we were sinners, he came and saved us. We're grateful that you additionally saved, uh, sent the written word that uh, could be copied and written, and, and, and we could have uh, it in front of us. And we pray that we will um, respectfully uh, see it and search it and uh, not, be a bur not be burdened by it and, and not have to do it, but as we consult its contents, do so by the Spirit and let the, well, well, well we won't major in minor specs and we won't minor in major things. We will just pursue you in spirit and truth. And realizing that this is a tool and a gift that you've given us individually to read as a spiritual map for our walk with you. So we're grateful for the discussion. We, are, uh, we lift up the people who are on this list. We pray for Mike, who uh, brain bleeds stroke for healing and peace. Um, I don't know if this is the Mike I'm thinking, but uh, Lord bless him and protect him, his family. Annette, comfort and peace. Cancer is spread. She's no, it's no longer treatable. And we're so sorry for uh, Sister Annette. We pray also for Lisa, who had terminal, terminal cancer, full, all through her body, inoperable, and has gone into remission and has seen all of those uh, cancer, uh, most of those cancer cells uh, fade and go away. And we consider that a modern uh, miracle by your hand. And uh, so we just pray for her and her family. We pray for Phyllis, extraordinary pancreatitis and upcoming surgery on that for Robert healing peace from cancer and lymphoma from Diane uh, kidney stones and our sister Diana for her comfort and the ailment of her body and her joints and her arthritis and knee replacements and all the other things in that uh, place that she's at we pray that she won't become despondent and uh, she'll be able to move forward in her health and then Lord we just lift each other up those who are present, those who are not, people in our families, people who we care about and worry about, 
our own selves, our own worries. We just pray that you will bring that peace into our home, into our hearts, into our lives. And uh, maybe those in the sound of my voice who don't know you, uh, who are watching from home or whatever, that we pray that you will make yourself known and that through the way they see, observe the world around them, they'll begin to see your hand and your presence and that they'll experience that rebirth, that regeneration of the spirit, be born again, and then move freely at liberty and without the burdens of the law upon them. We pray that you will guide us and help us be better Christians as we exit this building, that if it's your will, we can meet back together next week. And in the meantime, you use us to reach out to those who need it and help us to, by your spirit, not by demand, know what to say and know when to say it as we walk the course of this week. We love you. We worship you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.